This is the Adam Ragusea Podcast, episode 70, and you have just clicked into an hour-long program on copyright law. That's pretty remarkable, don't you think? Like, it's pretty remarkable that tens of thousands of people subscribed to the Season the Cutting Board guy are manifestly this interested in the arcane topic of intellectual property law. How did that happen? How did the fair use doctrine become a matter of popular concern? How did you get to the point where you, in your spare time, would spend well over an hour listening to a rant about fair use from a guy who isn't even a lawyer? How'd that happen? A big answer, of course, is that we are all aware that some of our favorite online content is under constant threat from spurious copyright challenges. Some of my videos have been demonetized over the years on the flimsiest of grounds, and the only reason that isn't a big problem for me is that I am hashtag blessed to have a pretty big audience and a killer business representative who keeps me perpetually stacked with sponsors. My content makes enough money overall that I don't really care if a few individual pieces of content make less money or no money. What the cool kids might call selling out is actually what enables you to not sell out. I can stand my ground on all kinds of things from unreasonable sponsor demands to copyright claims because I am not ashamed to make as much money as is reasonably possible from my content. Money equals power and power equals freedom. It also helps that the particular content area in which I primarily work, food, that's generally less burdened by copyright considerations. If I mostly analyzed music or if I mostly reviewed movies, I would be working in a much more densely mined field. <laughs> Other content creators, many of whom I know personally and whom I love very much, other content creators are under very real threat from a copyright system that has, in my view, gotten out of hand. Both on the legal side of fair use and on the corporate policy side of fair use. The latter of which is proving to be more significant in today's world. How the U.S. Congress interpreted fair use in 1976 matters a lot less than what some suits at Google think about fair use today. Google, or YouTube, or Alphabet, or whichever exact corporate entity is most relevant to this discussion, whoever owns YouTube, let's go with Google, Google is probably the most important single arbiter of copyright disputes in the world today, even if no law appointed them as such, and even if they would really rather not be in the business of arbitrating copyright disputes. With great power comes great responsibility. But I am not as convinced as many of my YouTuber peers are convinced that Google is dropping the ball here. I think Google is in a really tough spot regarding copyright. Then again, the fourth largest company in the world by market capitalization should be able to handle tough spots, right? Like, I think it's appropriate for our expectations of Google to be very high, given the stunning accumulation of wealth in Google's hands that is occurring as a direct result of our content creation and our clicks. We can have very high standards for Google, 
while at the same time we can recognize that Google is in a very tough spot regarding copyright. As much as content creators are struggling to exercise their fair use rights in a place like YouTube, it is also the case that YouTube is full of flagrant copyright violations. My own videos constantly get reposted by other accounts that make money off of my stuff, and I don't see a penny of that unless I make a stink about it, which I rarely do. Why not? Well, in part, it's just a matter of setting priorities in my life. I could either spend my afternoon filing copyright claims, or I could spend my afternoon making a brand new piece of content that will add value to the world and will probably make a lot more money for me than anything that I could make by going after accounts of questionable moral character that are doing legally questionable things with my creations. But also, I do also have a very liberal set of views regarding copyright. Liberal might not be the best word. Maybe let's go with relaxed or laissez-faire. In general, in practice, I think a lot of stuff gets protected by copyright that really should not be protected by copyright. I mean, I hate that people get to own combinations of words or colors or musical notes that really belong to the commons from which all our livestock graze. Remember the Dua Lipa thing from a few years ago? That awesome song, Levitating? The chorus goes, ba-da, ba-da. And she got sued by the authors of a reggae song no one had ever heard before that also goes, ba-da, ba-da. Even though Dua Lipa and colleagues claimed, believably, I think, that they actually lifted the ba-da thing from the Outkast song, Rosa Parks. And Outkast did not sue Dua Lipa, perhaps because Andre and Big Boy know how absurd it is for anyone to claim that they own something as elemental as long, short, long, short. Yes, that particular suit got thrown out of court. And thank God Ed Sheeran won his trial. But Pharrell lost his with blurred lines. And things are getting pretty ridiculous, in the opinion of this composer-turned-journalist-turned-guy who often taught basic media law to undergraduate students-turned-YouTube cook. That's a me! Claims of musical ownership are getting out of hand. Somebody hurry up and build that bot they would automatically compose every single conceivable melody within a certain length of notes. And this bot would then automatically publish these brilliant compositions to a website and maybe register them with some nation's copyright office, even though that part isn't really legally necessary. And then whoever built this bot could just say, hey, all of these melodies that we now own, these are now creative commons. Use them together, use them in peace and thus all future copyright claims over basic melodic material would be rendered moot. Somebody hurry up and do that, because this crap where somebody gets to claim a three-note melodic sequence from a Sam Smith song is completely insane. Claiming to own that sequence, as Tom Petty did, claiming to own that is like claiming to own the combination of blue and orange, or whatever. You don't get to own basic elements of nature. All of us who do creative work of any kind, we are all just wandering around the same garden, 
plucking flowers and arranging them in a variety of bouquets. It's amazing how many radically different bouquets you can arrange from the same set of flowers. And we do own our bouquets, but we do not own the flowers. The flowers are in the commons. I could go on and on about stupid music lawsuits, but today I'm a focus on YouTube stuff. Yes, YouTube is full of flagrant copyright violations of my work and of everybody else's work, but almost never do I go after the violators. Do I have to say alleged violators? I don't think so, because I'm the one doing the alleging. Like, I'm making the allegation right now. I'm saying they violated my copyright, and alas, I am not a court of law unto myself, though I do think Judge Goose would be a good-ass show. Anyway, I almost never go after people who I believe are violating my copyrights. In part because I have very permissive views on copyright, and I need to put my money where my mouth is. My standard... Not the legal standard, though this standard is a component of copyright law. My standard is, is this person using my stuff to make something new? And there's a few ancillary questions that I consider that we'll get back to, but one that ought to be the biggest one for all of us is, does the new work make or say or do something substantially different than the previous work that it's drawing on. If somebody takes my stuff and makes new culture with it, such that nobody would watch the other guy's thing instead of watching my thing, then I probably have no grounds to complain. That is my ethical position on fair use. Did they make new culture with it? I am going to argue why I think this very simple consideration, this very simple question, this should be at the heart of all fair use considerations. It's already at the heart of many fair use considerations, but fair use as a legal concept is surprisingly vague, so it can legitimately mean lots of different things to lots of different people. Copyright disputes are very rarely adjudicated in court. Something like 99.99999% of copyright disputes are resolved out of court. And as a result, clarifying judicial precedents are rarely ever set. In this arena, more so than in others, the law really is what we say it is. Because judges rarely get a say in the matter. And the letter of the law is as vague as it is sparse. What even is fair use? Well, first we need to define copyright. Copyright is one of the four broadly recognized types of intellectual property. The other three being patents, trademarks, and trade secrets. Those are the four big legal categories of intangible ideas that you can own. Colloquially, people often use copyright to refer to all four of these intellectual property rights, but there are really big differences between them. Trade secrets are just 
valuable bits of information that businesses keep to themselves. The most famous example of all time being the recipe for Coca-Cola, which for nearly 150 years has been locked in a steampunk vault deep under the streets of Atlanta, along with all of the lost Confederate gold, one presumes. Wherever they really keep it, the good people of the Coca-Cola company have kept that recipe secret for an astoundingly long time, like since Reconstruction. Early versions of the recipe have leaked over the years, but never the current production formula. Surely any employee who gets access to any part of that recipe has to sign a non-disclosure agreement as a condition of their employment, and if they violate that agreement by bringing the secret formula over to the chum bucket, Coca-Cola can sue that now former employee, and the courts will probably rule in Coke's favor. Also, if you engage in corporate espionage, you can get sent to prison. If you work at Coca-Cola and you snap a copy of the recipe with your phone, knowing full well that you were not authorized to do so, and then if you text that photo to your buddy Plankton so that the chum bucket can derive an economic benefit at the expense of the Coke company, well, then that's not just a civil infraction. That's a criminal offense, allegedly. It's the Coca-Cola company that decides which information it possesses counts as trade secrets. But of course, they can't get ridiculous with that. If they alleged theft of trade secrets because a former employee divulged the brand of office chair favored in the Coca-Cola offices, then I doubt that even the most favorable Atlanta law enforcement agency, prosecutor, or a judge would seriously entertain that case. The administration of justice always requires, you know, judgment. That's trade secrets. Patents are like trade secrets that you actively register with the government. You fill out a government form where you say, hey, I've invented this thing called Coca-Cola. It's got cocaine in it originally. You're going to love it. Here's the recipe. And if you can convince a government patent clerk that your invention really is new and not obvious, then they'll grant you a patent that says only you are able to market the fruits of that formula for a period of 20 years, usually. And it's usually not renewable. I suppose I'm talking this whole episode about U.S. intellectual property law, but U.S. intellectual property law has been effectively, mostly, internationalized via trade agreements and such. So this is basically true for basically everyone within the sound of my voice. Patents generally last about 20 years, which isn't that long in the scheme of things. And once the patent is up, the chum bucket can immediately start marketing Coca-Cola themselves because the recipe is public knowledge. It's in the patent filing from 20 years previous. Patents make it illegal for anyone but the patent holder to market an invention. In order to follow that law, the rest of us have to be able to know what exactly it is that we're not allowed to market. You can't make secret laws. The word patent comes from the Latin word patere, which literally means to lay open. 
You have to lay open your invention for public inspection if you want the government to grant you a temporary monopoly to market this invention, which is what a patent is. The best argument in favor of patents from the societal perspective is that they, arguably, help to incentivize innovation. If I invest years of research and development into an invention, it would suck if the second I start selling my invention, a hundred other companies said, mm, wow, that looks cool. Let's sell exactly the same thing, even though we did none of the work to develop this great idea. From a societal perspective, I want inventors to be sufficiently rewarded for their inventions, and patents can help ensure that they are rewarded. But at the same time, you don't want inventors to own their inventions forever, right? Hey, what if it's a super useful product, but the company that owns the patent is having some troubles and they aren't actually producing this product? Or maybe they are producing the product, but what if they just suck and they're complacent and they do a terrible job actually manufacturing this invention? And so all the models on the market are just shoddy. What if there are slight improvements that could be made to the design, etc.? What if the inventor has been richly compensated for their invention, but now they're using their monopoly to ruthlessly price gouge on this now essential product? No competition means very little downward price pressure on an essential good. The price is only limited by the, the ability of consumers to pay. From a societal perspective, you want to free up the market to fully realize the potential of an invention. So the compromise is you give the inventor a 20-year monopoly to get paid. But after that, it's everybody's invention. Everybody else can start marketing the invention the day the patent expires because the specifics of the invention are already known. The cat's already out of the bag. You had to lay open your invention to get the patent in the first place. Anybody can see your formula or your blueprints or whatever it is online. From the patent holder's perspective, that might sound like a bad deal, but patents offer greater protection than trade secrets, albeit for a limited time. The Coke formula is a trade secret. If I steal the Coke formula, that's illegal. But if I buy a bottle of Coke and I take it back to my lab and I successfully reverse engineer the formula, well, that's perfectly legal. And I can start marketing my Coca-Cola doppelganger today if I want. It's perfectly legal to reverse engineer a trade secret. If Coke was patented, I couldn't do that. So why didn't the Coke people patent their formula? Well, because they want to own their recipe for another 150 years, not just 20. So they have opted to never lay open their formula to apply for a patent. And as a result, reverse engineering of Coke is 100% legal. If you stumble on a perfect copy of Coke in your lab, you can sell it. You just cannot call it Coca-Cola. Because that name is trademarked. And that's another of the four categories of intellectual property. A trademark. Trademarks 
are the identifying markers that you use to market your product. The name, the logo, the slogan, particularly identifiable package design, etc. Anything you use so that consumers can tell your product from the other guy's product. That's what you can trademark. Since pretty much the sole purpose of trademark law is to promote awareness and truthfulness about who is selling what, trademarks are infinitely renewable. You can renew them after 10 years, and 10 years after that, and 10 years after that. Coke can own the name Coca-Cola forever if they want. But in other ways, trademarks are really limited. It's only names, logos, slogans, etc., of marketable goods or services. No other aspect of the idea of your product can be trademarked. You cannot trademark the blueprints for that machine that you have designed or whatever. For that, you would need a patent. But the name of the machine you can trademark. Patents are, are limited to inventions, too. And inventions are usually defined as solutions to problems, like a plan to get from A to B, or a plan for making a thing that'll get you from A to B. It has to be a new plan, it can't be too obvious, and the plan has to be at least reasonably, potentially, good. Like a plan to assemble and ship highly perishable fresh food for meal kits. I have no idea if any of HelloFresh's supply chain techniques are patented, but I do know that HelloFresh has sponsored this episode of the Ragusea Pod, and for that, I am grateful. Get 50% off with my code 50RAGUSEA. Be grateful for that, too. I am grateful that the produce from HelloFresh shows up on my front stoop less than a week after it left the farm pre-portioned to make the quick and delicious HelloFresh recipe that they've sent me. One of the worst parts of cooking, to me, is dealing with all of the leftover ingredients. With HelloFresh, there generally are no leftover ingredients because everything is pre-portioned and calibrated for the specific recipe that you are making. This massively reduces food waste, and that's arguably the biggest single factor to consider when considering the carbon footprint of a meal. Food that you never buy in the first place has zero carbon footprint. So if you're not actually going to eat it, don't buy it. And HelloFresh really helps on that score. I know how to cook, but I don't want to have to come up with a recipe every night of the week. So HelloFresh really helps me on that score too. And their recipes are just killer. Have you had the HelloFresh shredded Brussels sprout pasta yet? That recipe is killer. I might steal it at some point. And I'll give them credit, even though recipes generally are not protected by copyright. And I say that even though I know that giving credit doesn't really protect you from copyright claims. And we're going to get back to all of that. But first, consider giving HelloFresh a try. There's so many different boxes you can sign up for. Meat, no meat, low-cal, kid-friendly, lots of options. Pause deliveries whenever you want. Add snacks and sides. You do you. Just make sure that you go to HelloFresh.com slash 50Ragusea. That is in the description. Use code 50Ragusea for 50% off plus free shipping. That's a great deal for America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh.com slash 50Ragusea. Use code 50Ragusea for 50% off. Thank you, HelloFresh. Anyway, 
we are defining copyright in contrast to patents. Patents are only for inventions, and inventions are usually plans to fix problems, or to accomplish something of practical value, or to build a thing that accomplishes something of practical value. To get a patent, this plan has to be new, it cannot be obvious, and it has to be at least reasonably, potentially good. Patent examiners make qualitative judgments. A patentable invention has to be new, non-obvious, and useful. Copyright, in contrast, is just so, so different. Copyright protects some things that are totally useless. Lots of things that are totally useless. The thing you're copywriting does have to be at least a little new and maybe a little non-obvious, but not much. And copyright protects a whole different set of intellectual properties, a whole different type of ideas. Patents protect inventions, and inventions are ideas about how to do something or how to make something. Copyright generally protects the intangible means by which you express or record your ideas. And intangibility is important here. You may represent and communicate and record your ideas with a tangible object, like a painting on a piece of canvas. But the layers of paint on the canvas are not your intellectual property. They are your material property. And if someone stole that canvas from you, it would be as if, as if they had stolen your car or your TV or your buckets of paint. It would be a normal physical property theft. But if instead they stole the image you created on that canvas, if they perfectly reproduced your painting and printed it on materials that they bought legally and sold it, if they, in essence, reverse engineered your painting, they wouldn't be stealing any of your material property, but they would be stealing your intellectual property. The idea of the image that you recorded and represented with paint on canvas. That's copyrightable. Inventions are also intangible. They're also intellectual property. It's the plan for the widget that gets the patent, not the widget itself. And the line between patentable ideas and copyrightable ideas is super blurry, especially in the realm of uh, computer programming. Like Computer code is generally subject to copyright law, but it can also be subject to patent law frequently as well. This is a case where you really see how definitions are like clouds of real-world things orbiting around purely theoretical, platonic ideal-type centers, like we were talking about last week with the meaning of baking versus cooking. Definitions are not categories, they are clouds. Patentable ideas are generally plans for doing something of practical value. And it's the idea itself that is protected, not the specific way that you wrote that idea down on paper or spoke it into a microphone. In contrast, copyrightable ideas are usually the specific way that you wrote down or recorded your thoughts. The combination of words you used. I mean, not the paper that you wrote them down on, that's material property, but the order of words you used is intellectual property. And you could successfully assert copyright over your order of words if 
the order of words you used was just a little bit novel, you know, not directly copied and pasted from somewhere else, and not absurdly obvious like, I like pizza. I could maybe trademark I like pizza as a slogan if I could prove that consumers associate that slogan with my pizza brand well above all others, but I probably could not successfully assert copyright over a poem consisting of the three words, I like pizza. Other than that very minimal bar to clear, copyright law is generally unconcerned with how good or original or useful your ideas are, which is a good thing because copyright generally protects ideas of aesthetic value rather than ideas of practical value. Who is to say which ideas have aesthetic value? What is aesthetic or artistic value? That's a question without an answer. And I don't know about you, but I generally want the government to leave unanswerable questions to you and me to figure out for ourselves whenever possible. Whereas patents generally protect plans for new products or services, Copyright generally protects things like poems and paintings and string quartets and slasher films, all of which are examples of art. And copyright is particularly associated with art, though it is not limited to art. For reasons that we discussed in a YouTube video a couple years ago, recipes are generally not patentable. I am very proud of my new waffle recipe but I probably could not get a patent for it. I could try. I could write down my waffle recipe in exhaustive detail. I could explain all the things about it that I think are novel and non-obvious, and then I could submit this document as a patent application. It would be rejected. I would not, will not ever own the patent for making fluffy malty waffles with meringue and malted milk powder. I will never own that. But I would own the copyright of my patent application. The words that I used to express my recipe or the video that I shot to demonstrate my recipe, all of that I clearly own. I own the copyright. I don't own the recipe itself, but I do own the words and the pictures that I used to communicate that recipe. Not the words themselves, obviously, but the order of the words that I used. Assuming that that order was like minimally novel and non-obvious. Sometimes purely technical writing can be considered not copyrightable, but usually. Copyrightable works can be artistic in nature, or they can be technical in nature, but it's the expression itself that the law is protecting. It's the intellectual vessel of the idea, not the payload inside that vessel. I can write a song about how I'm scared that everything I'm doing to help my children grow up will eventually be used by them to escape from me and to leave me behind. I can write a song about that feeling and the order of words and notes I would use, those would be copyrightable. But that specific fear that I am expressing is not copyrightable. And with good reason. I don't get to own a feeling any more than I get to own a slightly quirky but still pretty simple and standard and obvious waffle recipe. What I own is how I express these things. 
And copyright is chiefly concerned with protecting expression and incentivizing expression, giving me a chance to make money with my song or my video without some other market player trying to crowd me out by selling my song or my video without having to first spend the time and effort that it took for me to write the song or to make the video. Copyright originally meant just what it means on its face, the right to copy something, like a book or a song or an hour-and-a-half-long spoken rumination on copyright. Another thing that makes copyright different than patents is that you do not have to apply for copyright. You don't even have to publish the work on which you claim copyright. I mean, it helps to publish. If you're ever in a copyright dispute with someone, it's going to make your argument a lot stronger if you can say, hey, I published a song that goes long, short, long, short, two years before the defendant, Mr. Harry Styles, published his song that goes long, short, all this late night talking, a song that came out in 2022. I, Dua Lipa, released a hit song with long, short chorus in 2020, so I win. That's going to make your argument a lot more persuasive to a judge or whomever. And it might strengthen your case if you actively register your work with the copyright office, but you do not have to. You own the copyright the instant this creative expression leaves your brain. Assuming that you weren't coming up with these creative expressions on behalf of an employer, in which case they own the copyright instantly. In that sense, from the creator's perspective... Copyright sounds like a lot better than patent, but copyright has its own limitations. Again, if you work out a really valuable formula or industrial process or a bit of product engineering, you can easily claim copyright over the way you express that idea, but it's harder to claim copyright over the idea that you're expressing. There are exceptions. For example, people have successfully claimed copyright over fictional characters they come up with, not just the stories into which they wrote those characters. That's an example of where it's, it's not just the rocket that gets the copyright, but also the payload on the rocket. The character is part of the payload, right? But I've struggled to think of other parallel examples where copyright protects the thing being expressed, not just the expression. In general, copyright protects what most people might recognize as works of culture. All human activity is culture, but some things we do are more cultural than others. Movies, plays, photos, books, pods, YouTube videos, sculptures, choreography, and computer programs, though some stuff in computer programming falls more naturally under patent law. Copyright is the right to, in some way, duplicate a creative work. What counts as creative work and what counts as an outright duplication is why we have law schools. I did not go to law school, remember? I'm just a lifelong professional media creator with a greater than normal interest in media law, and I have been fortunate enough to discuss these topics in great detail with some of the leading scholars in the field, like Dr. Pat Ofterheide, 
at American University in Washington, one of the, she's a media scholar, not a lawyer. Someone's going to say that. She's a great media scholar and one of the leading scholarly voices on the topic of fair use. And now, finally, we can define fair use in as much as fair use can be defined. Since fair use is largely undefined in statutory or case law, Ofterheide has for many years been formulating definitions of fair use that are explicitly as prescriptive as they are descriptive. She's not just saying, here's what fair use is. She's saying, here's what fair use should be because the law is unclear. And if anybody other than Congress is going to help to define fair use, then it should be creators and scholars, not just suits at Google. Or at least the suits and the creators should both have their say. I doubt that said suits at Google would disagree. And to their credit, they have actively listened to the creator community a lot. I know because I get the survey invites and I get the phone calls. Anyway, I am leaning heavily on Pat Ofterheide's work here for this episode. And that's all I'm trying to say. Fair use is a doctrine within civil law that asserts some unauthorized use of copyrighted material is not necessarily illegal. There are circumstances under which I can copy stuff you wrote without your permission. This is an idea that has been around since the birth of copyright itself, but it was not written into the law or codified in the United States until the Copyright Act of 1976. Before then, it only existed in case law, judge-made law, and in that context, it had been around in the Anglo-American legal tradition for like centuries. By the way, hashtag Ragusea tangent, by the way, Remember when Jeff Sessions, briefly the attorney general under President Trump, remember when he got in trouble for talking about the Anglo-American legal tradition because people took that as some kind of white nationalist dog whistle? That was real dumb. I mean, I think Jeff Sessions is real dumb, and I think Donald Trump is real, real, real dumb. And I think both of those dudes absolutely use white nationalist dog whistles all the time, but this was not one of those times. Anglo-American in this context just refers to the legal tradition brought to the Americas by English settlers and then developed jointly on both shores of the Atlantic over the next few centuries. Anyway, fair use has always been around, but they didn't write it into the law in the U.S. until 1978, which is when the Copyright Act of 1976 actually went into effect. I'm going to read you the entire section of that law on fair use. It won't take but a minute. It's real short. The law says very little about fair use. Quote, The fair use of a copyrighted work, including such use by reproduction in copies or phono records, or by any other means specified, for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, including multiple copies for classroom use, scholarship or research is not an infringement of copyright. We're already a third of the way through this section of the law, if you're wondering. Let's stop right there, though. 
Note that the statute still has not defined fair use. It has just singled out a few types of unauthorized uses as being fair, such as when you use someone else's work for the purposes of criticism, comment, news reporting, and teaching. Resume quote. In determining whether the use made of a work in any particular case is a fair use, the factors to be considered shall include, and get excited because we've finally gotten to the meat of it, what follows in the law has come to be known as the four-factor test. The only four things that the statute mentions as factors to be considered when determining whether an unauthorized use of copyrighted material is fair. So resume quote. Here's the four factors. One, the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of commercial nature or is for nonprofit educational purposes. Time out, right? So that doesn't mean that anything you do at your university counts as fair use, but the fact that you're doing it as part of your scholarship at a nonprofit school, that definitely argues in favor of fair use. Resume quote. Two, the nature of the copyrighted work. That's literally all the law says about factor number two. <laughs> the nature of the copyrighted work. If you're trying to consider whether something counts as fair use, you should consider what exactly is being used. Good tip, Congress. Here's an example of what factor two has actually meant in practice, okay? Yes, the law explicitly says that it's fair use if you copy something for everybody in the classroom, but what if the nature of the copyrighted work is a textbook sold to schools for use in classrooms? If all copying for the classroom is fair use, then nobody can make any money by authoring textbooks or worksheets or anything like that, which might actually be the world that I want. I mean, I don't love profit motive in institutional educational settings, but we have a free market economy. And if we want it to produce educational materials, we need to make sure that people have a way to make money by making educational materials. So if I'm a professor, I was a professor when I was a journalism professor and I wanted my class to read and scrutinize a news article from behind a paywall. I had no worries about copying and pasting that article and emailing it out to my class. But if I had a chapter from a journalism textbook that I wanted for them to read, that was a trickier situation. And I usually went and I asked my department head, so at least they would get the blame and not me. Factor two to consider when determining if something is fair use is what exactly is the work being used and how might its specific nature play into all of the other factors, which we will now resume. So resume quote three, the third factor three, the amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole. This is a big one. And happily, it is much easier to understand. How much exactly did you steal? Did you sample the whole song or the whole chorus? Or did you just sample one snare drum sound out of the song? Those are really different cases, right? 
There is nothing in the law that says 10 seconds or less is fine or whatever time limit you could come up with, nor should the law say anything so concrete like that. It's always going to depend. If I'm writing a song and in it, I quote two lines from chemical calisthenics by Blackalicious. That's a tiny percentage of the copyrighted work that I'm using because chemical calisthenics has like a hundred lines in it. It's one of the wordiest memorable songs ever recorded in contrast if i quote two lines from school by nirvana possibly my favorite nirvana song if i lift two lines from school then i am lifting all the lyrics from school because school only has two lines repeated over and over and over again won't you believe it it's just my luck no recess that's the whole song lyrically it's not fair to use the whole song. Or is it? What if I was writing a news story about Ed Sheeran's copyright trial? He wrote a hit song called Thinking Out Loud that, ethically speaking, is absolutely a ripoff of Let's Get It On, a much better and more original song by Marvin Gaye. Sheeran might argue that his song was a tribute to Marvin Gaye, a bit of a pastiche of Marvin Gaye rather than a theft. Kind of feels like theft to me, but only ethically, not legally. I 100% do not want any government saying that somebody can own a sexy song about sex where the chords go one, minor three, four, five. And every other chord changes on the and of the beat, which is a, a rhythmic feature known as push chords. I do not want anybody to legally own something so elemental. As a matter of cosmic justice, Marvin Gaye 100% owns sexy songs about sex that go one, minor three, four, five. Mostly because he was so successful with that simple formula that he will now forever be associated with it. But I don't want him to legally own something so elemental. And I especially don't want his greedy estate to own it in perpetuity. That's one distinguishing feature of copyright law that we did not discuss. Copyrights are theoretically limited in time, but not by much. Copyright generally lasts the duration of the author's life plus 70 years. And it's even longer for works that are credited to corporations. Thank the Disney Corporation for that one. I definitely want copyright to protect the ability of creators to make a living. But I do not want copyright to protect the ability of the great-grandchildren of creators to never have to work a day in their lives. Or probably more accurately these days, I don't love the idea of private equity firms making money off of someone else's genius for generations. I want an economic system that rewards work and productivity and creativity. I don't want an economic system that rewards you for simply possessing capital, though I suppose I remain essentially a capitalist. I'm not aware of any better system other than 
free market capitalism balanced by a robust social welfare state and a robust regulatory state. Looking at the world, that's the best system that I see. If you think you've got something better, now's the time. Anyway, what if I was writing a news story about Ed Sheeran's copyright trial? And as part of that story, I posted online a second-by-second analysis of the song. Or... I superimposed the Sheeran song and the gay song on top of each other so that people could compare them more easily. In these presentations, I might reproduce the entirety of Ed Sheeran's song, as opposed to just a tiny chunk of it. And yet, a judge would probably still call that fair use. In part, that's because the statute expressly privileges news reporting— It would be very hard to tell people what's going on in the world without broad fair use rights. Also, in this hypothetical situation where I reproduced every second of Ed Sheeran's song online, in that hypothetical situation, I probably would have the fourth and final factor squarely on my side. This is literally the last word on fair use as far as U.S. statutory law is concerned, okay? The fourth factor to consider in fair use cases is, resume quote, the effect of the use upon the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work. The fact that a work is unpublished shall not itself bar a finding of fair use if such a finding is made upon consideration of all the above factors, okay? And that's the end of the law, end quote. But the fourth factor is the effect of the use on the market value of the copyrighted work being used. If I use all of Ed Sheeran's song in my podcast, but I talk over it the entire time, giving my musical and, God forbid, legal analysis, then absolutely nobody is going to download my podcast instead of streaming Ed Sheeran's song on Spotify or wherever. Even though I've used the whole damn song, I have done nothing to interfere with the market for Ed's song. And that strongly argues in favor of my use being fair. I suppose there's a chance that my reporting could convince everyone that Ed Sheeran is a hack and Marvin Gaye was way better. And so they would end up streaming Marvin instead of Ed. And in that sense... I guess my use of Ed's song has reduced the market value of Ed's song, but I'm pretty sure any judge would say that's really Ed's fault, not Adam's fault. Pointing out how a product sucks is not interfering with that product's market. Use for the purpose of commentary and criticism is classic fair use. That doesn't mean that all use for commentary is fair. Imagine I was going to do a YouTube video about Ed Sheeran's song. And I said, hey, guys, lots of people have been asking me if I think this Ed Sheeran song is a Marvin Gaye ripoff. So today we're going to get into that. But first, let's listen to the song. And I, I play the whole song beginning to end without talking over it or doing anything of the sort. In that case, some people really might watch my YouTube video instead of streaming that song or watching the song on Ed's own YouTube channel from which he'd probably draws buckets of income. That might not be a fair use, even though it's for commentary. Here's an example that Lauren complains about all the time. My wife is a many times published fiction author. And in her recent teen pizza shop romance, 
It's Kind of a Cheesy Love Story. That's what it's called. And in that book, she wanted to include an epigraph or a little short quotation at the beginning of a book that's meant to foreshadow the book's themes. That's what an epigraph is. And in her first draft, the epigraph that she wrote down was, when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. That's a line written by lyricist Jack Brooks for singer Dean Martin in 1953. And it's still under copyright, even though Jack Brooks died 50 years ago. Even a dusty pile of bones in the ground still needs a market incentive to create, apparently. Anyway, an epigraph like that probably is fair use, in my very humble non-lawyer's legal opinion, though it's not an open and shut case, because epigraphs are not usually all that transformative. Simply plucking out the quote and putting it on an otherwise blank page before a book chapter, that does not do very much to make new culture out of that quote. That's more of like a, a decorative use, and decorative uses are generally not considered fair use. If, in contrast, you used the song as a plot point within the story, or if you, you wrote a whole fiction or nonfiction book that was a commentary on the Dean Martin song and its legacy in our society, that would be more transformative, and that would argue more in favor of fair use. The new Barbie movie was made very much with the permission of Mattel, the toy company that presumably owns all Barbie doll-related intellectual property, Mattel was a producer on the new Barbie movie. It was all done with their permission. However, you could argue that Greta Gerwig and friends could have made that Barbie movie without Mattel's permission. Because that movie is not just a Barbie story that's set within the Barbie universe, which Mattel clearly owns. That movie is also a commentary on Barbie and on that character's enormous societal and cultural legacy. And it's even a commentary on Mattel and Ruth Handler, who invented Barbie. The Barbie movie is, substantially, a parody of Barbie, and a commentary on the Barbie doll phenomenon. And those kinds of things are generally protected by fair use law. They maybe could have made the Barbie movie without Mattel's permission. They probably would have had to tilt the movie a little more squarely in the direction of commentary and parody. Like, that movie is also just a Barbie story that's set within the Barbie universe, which would probably not be protected under fair use. The Barbie movie is Barbie and a subversion of Barbie all at the same time. And it's a commentary on movies that subvert brands while simultaneously hawking said brands, which is exactly the kind of movie that the Barbie movie also is. The Barbie movie is everything, which is why it's so ridiculously brilliant and it should win all of the awards if there's any justice in this world. Anyway, epigraphs are not particularly transformative and that argues against fair use. But consider factor four, the impact of an epigraph on the market for the text that you're quoting in the epigraph. There is no impact. Who in the hell... I have to sneeze before I make this angry point. Oh, no, I lost it. Oh, anger cost me a sneeze. Anyway, there is no impact. Who in the hell is going to buy Lauren's book instead of streaming That's Amore on Apple Music? 
Absolutely no one is going to do that. So to me, an epigraph should generally be fair use. And I suspect a lot of judges would agree with me, but this never comes before judges. Legal research is its own art, one in which I have not been trained, but I am generally good at research. I can search legal databases, and I cannot find a single ruling in which a judge dealt directly with this question. Are epigraphs fair use? Questions like these almost never get to judges. Why? Because industry self-regulates which is a nice way of saying that deep-pocketed copyright holders hire lawyers to send out scary cease and desist letters, and everybody panics and says, sorry, never mind, even if they did nothing illegal at all. They just fold. The publishing industry seems to have decided that epigraphs are never fair use, or at least that epigraphs are not a legal risk worth taking, so they don't. Lauren had to change the Dean Martin epigraph a little bit just to make it slightly more transformative, to be on the safe side. If you want to know how she did it, buy a copy of It's Kind of a Cheesy Love Story by Lauren Morrow, anywhere books are sold. I think epigraphs should be fair use because they do nothing to hinder or to take from the market for the original thing that you're quoting. In contrast, what if we published that line on a t-shirt? Imagine if Yellow House Media, the LLC under which Lauren and I do creative work for a living, imagine if we printed up t-shirts that say, when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore, and we sold those shirts as Lauren Morrill or Adam Ragusea merch. No one would buy that shirt instead of listening to the Dean Martin song, but... Dean Martin's estate, or whoever owns that song, probably does make or license t-shirts with that lyric on it. And somebody really might buy the Yellow House Media version of that shirt instead of the Dean Martin version of that shirt. And either shirt only has any value at all because people know and love that song. And therefore, no, I would not argue that this hypothetical Lauren Morrill t-shirt would be fair use, which is why we will not be making that merch. Also... Fair use generally favors creative works over, like, commercial works. This gets a little confusing because most creative works that you've ever seen are made and bought and sold in a commercial context. This podcast is a creative work. It's an editorial work, is another way it might be described. Absolutely no one would argue that my use of Dean Martin lyrics in this podcast just now has been infringing. It's clearly fair use, because I'm using those lyrics to talk about the copyright to which they are subject. This right here is a creative or editorial work that I'm making, even though I'm doing it in a commercial context. I'm getting paid to be here right now. I cross-post my podcasts to YouTube, and on YouTube, my podcasts make a little money through the YouTube Partner Program. I also read sponsor messages within the show, and I get paid for that. Don't worry, this is not a transition to a sponsor message. If I quoted Dean Martin within a sponsor message as part of the paid advertisement that I'm doing, that almost certainly would not be considered fair use. I mean, if I was selling a record and I wanted to argue that my record is a superior alternative to Dean Martin's record and you should buy my record instead of his, yeah, 
Maybe it would be fair use if I played a little bit of Dean Martin's song in the course of making an argument that my song is better in my ad, but I don't know. A t-shirt is usually more of a commercial work than it is an editorial or creative work. There are exceptions. People make t-shirts that are works of art, etc. But generally, a t-shirt is just another widget to be bought and sold as a commercial good. And so it is generally less privileged by fair use laws, certainly the advertisements for it. When brands use memes from movies in online ads to sell their products, I'm always kind of surprised that they don't get sued. I mean, I'm sure some of them do get a cease and desist letter in the mail. Commercial uses can be fair, but editorial uses are far more likely to be considered fair, and uses in education are far more likely to be considered fair. How do people infringe my work? Let me, let me rephrase that. How do people use my work? fairly or otherwise? An obvious example would be all the YTP videos that you children make. YTP stands for YouTube Poop. It's when you take clips from lots of videos you don't own and you rearrange them in a usually humorous order. Allegedly humorous. People have gotten millions of views making YouTube Poop vids out of my vids. I do not watch them. Even though I know some of them are done with love, love for me and what I do, but I'm still too self-conscious to watch any of that stuff, so don't ask me. I would guess that there are YTP vids on the internet that remix my content to make it sound like I am having sex with my food. It's virtually impossible to talk about food and cooking without using language that is very similar to the language used in lovemaking. In part... This is because much of the slang that we use in the lovemaking arts is directly imported from the culinary arts. This is also because a lot of the basic physical actions that we do in food preparation are actions we also perform in the bedroom. And it's because lots of the physical objects that we handle in the kitchen are very similar to the physical objects we handle in the bedroom. And it's because the act of eating is sensual and pleasurable in the way that sex is. And cooking and eating often lead to sex and vice versa. Sometimes people leave comments saying, wow, Adam is... Boy, he just makes everything about sex, doesn't he? And I always want to reply, yeah, indeed. It's almost as though there's some connection between food and sex. Anyway, it's basically impossible to make food content that doesn't sound at least a little porny. And I usually embrace the porniness rather than trying to fight it. So I'm sure there are a million YTP vids that remix my vids to make it sound like I am sleeping with my cake. Hilarious. I'm sure. Knock your socks off, kids. If that's how you want to spend your very limited time on this earth, I'm not mad. And I'm not going to initiate a copyright dispute with you, even though I very easily could. Every video that gets uploaded to YouTube, some server farm on the West Coast probably runs through a number of databases to see if that video you're uploading is drawing material from some previously published material. If YouTube's bot finds that your video uses a shot from my video, I get a little alert that I can see in my YouTube creator interface. And if I want to argue that you have illegally taken my work, I can fill out a little form online. And if you don't dispute my claim, I can either get your video taken down 
That's called blocking. Or I can just take the money that YouTube would otherwise pay you for the views of your video. That's called demonetizing. I would never do that to a YouTube pooper. Why not? Well, first, because I don't really believe that I would have the law on my side in that situation. YTP vids are usually pretty transformative. Your funny vid that uses a tiny clip from my cake video is not replacing my cake video in the market. Nobody is watching an Adam Ragusea YTP instead of watching Adam Ragusea's cake recipe video. YouTube poopers are making new culture with my stuff, stupid as that new culture may be. The law isn't concerned with how good a creative work is when considering matters of copyright, nor should it be. I don't want judges judging which videos are good enough to warrant protection under the law. Most judges are old white men, and such men deserve no more control over our culture than they, we, already exert. And they certainly shouldn't be using the state's monopoly over organized violence to exert control over our culture based on their personal assessment of which YouTube videos are good. YTP vids may be dumb, but they are new culture. Especially if the YTP edit implicitly comments on me and my work and how I'm constantly contradicting myself or how I'm always talking about heterogeneity or how I'm always using the word moist in a really suggestive way or whatever. If you edit them together, Right? If you edit together every time that Adam Ragusea douses his food with vinegar so as to point out how obsessed Adam is with vinegar in his recipes, that is clearly fair use. I could still initiate a copyright claim against you, dear YouTube pooper, but you could still appeal on the grounds that your use is fair use, and then it would go back to me, where I would have to sign an affidavit saying that I do not believe your use is fair, which I could not do because I don't believe that. But even if I did and I rejected your appeal and you appealed my rejection, it would theoretically then escalate to someone at YouTube who would make a judgment call. And I hope they would judge in your favor because that is clearly fair use. But the sad fact is... There's a good chance that if I initiate a copyright claim against you, you'll just relent out of fear or ignorance and you'll either take your video down or you'll let me take all the money generated by your video. There's a good chance you'll just roll over and take it because you're scared. And that is not great. It is too easy for copyright holders to initiate copyright claims in YouTube's system, spurious claims or otherwise. Record labels have bots. These bots just automatically challenge every single video that uses the tiniest little bit of a song that the label thinks it owns with no regard to fair use at all. Would you like a particularly hilarious example? In an early episode of the Adam Ragusea podcast, I did a little essay that I was particularly proud of called Coke Syrup and the Composer. In that essay, I talked about how the great Hollywood composer Leonard Rosenman plagiarized himself. He took music that he had written for the 1970s animated Lord of the Rings movie, and he reused that music in the 1980s Star Trek movie where they go back in time and save the whales. 
Legally, there's no such thing as self-plagiarism, assuming you own your own work, but Leonard Rosamond probably did not own his own work in either of these cases. The movie studios probably own the music that they commissioned from Leonard, and therefore he was stealing from one studio when he sold some of the same music to a different movie studio. I played clips of the two movie scores in my podcast, just enough music to illustrate the plagiarism. And that was fair use, if anything has ever been fair use. Nonetheless, I got a copyright claim on the YouTube version of that podcast episode, as I anticipated. The claim was from some corporate entity associated with Star Trek IV. The bot representing this corporate entity basically said, You, Adam Ragusea, you've used music that we own from Star Trek IV without permission, so... We're going to take all the money generated by your YouTube video, unless you appeal. So I appealed, of course. Not only was this clearly fair use, but I'm also not sure that Paramount, or whatever corporate entity that owns Star Trek IV, I'm not sure that they actually own that specific music we were talking about. Because the specific Star Trek music I played was plagiarized from Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings cartoon from 1978. If the music was stolen, then Paramount doesn't actually own it. And therefore, Paramount has zero standing to say whether I stole that music, and they have zero standing to take any money generated by that music. It doesn't belong to them in any sense told you this was a particularly hilarious case. So I wrote all that up in my appeal, and Paramount or whoever it was did not appeal my appeal. They relented, as they should have. If any human being at the company actually looked at my appeal, they probably thought, oh no, let's just drop this before Ralph Bakshi gets a wind and he starts claiming a percentage of the Star Trek IV rights. So yay, that one ended in my favor. It doesn't always go that way. Remember when I did a YouTube video about Van Halen? And all the kitchen tips that I have extrapolated from the mighty Van Halen? Van Halen's record label challenged me on that vid because I used a literally 2.5 second clip, as I recall, from You've Really Got Me, a song written by the Kinks and not Van Halen, so they don't own the song, but they do own that recording of the song. And so they filed a copyright dispute with me because I used da na 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 in my YouTube video. Seemed like fair use to me, so I appealed. The record label rejected my appeal. They gave no reason, nor did they have to. I could have appealed their rejection, but to do so, I would have had to sign an affidavit saying that I believe what I did was fair use. And there I hesitated. I really, really, really do not want to be prosecuted for perjury in a U.S. federal court. That typically does not go well for people, as certain Donald Trump associates are finding out. Prosecutors often have a hard time proving the crime. It's much easier to prove the cover-up. It's how they finally got Al Capone. They got him for the tax evasion that he perpetrated in order to hide the earnings from his vast criminal enterprise. I really don't want to say anything questionable under threat of perjury. And in that moment, 
I suddenly became unsure of whether I sincerely believed that my use of that Van Halen song really was fair use. I mean, did I really have to play that riff in order to make a point about cooking salmon or whatever I did in that video? I don't remember. Or was my use more decorative than it was illustrative? Decorative use is generally less fair. Did I play two seconds of that song because it was a rockin' song? decorative, or because I was commenting on the song or making some kind of substantially new culture out of that song. In retrospect, I'm pretty sure that my use was fair use, but in the moment, being asked to sign an affidavit and escalating this up the chain at YouTube where it would be me against some gigantic record label that Google is totally in bed with, presented with that possibility, I said to myself, hmm, Maybe I can live without the revenue from the Van Halen video. Best not rock the boat. And I relented. Oh, I regret that now. I really regret that. Now I want nothing more than to be a test case that ultimately expands or at least clarifies the definition of fair use. I want to be a precedent. Well, in the Ragusea case, the Supreme Court established XYZ. I really want that. I really want some loathsome rent-seeking IP holder corporate entity to come after me on copyright grounds so that I can use my YouTube money to pay lawyers to bring this thing to court and we can actually establish some real case law about what is or is not fair use and whether YouTube's policies handling copyright disputes are fair and lawful. Courts can say all they want, but ultimately the practical expression of our fair use rights is now vested with Google and Facebook and all the other private platforms that host all our content now. When I did that Van Halen video, I was still relatively new at the YouTube thing and I hadn't made as much money and we were putting all of our cash into buying the new house that we live in now and I was just scared so I let it go. I will never let it go again, if I believe that I'm in the right. What we really need is just some new fair use legislation written for the 21st century. We have to update these laws for the internet age. I don't know if that needs to be done in the U.S. Congress or at the World Trade Organization, but it needs to be done, and I think there are viable political compromises to be found here. Yes, lots of deep-pocketed companies own IP on which they would like to assert their copyrights, but lots of deep-pocketed companies also own or host IP that draws tons of copyright challenges. Sure, Republican Party voters in the U.S. generally hate musicians and filmmakers and such, but they also hate big tech. They'd love to stick it to big tech. Sure, Democratic Party voters love government authority, but they tend to love musicians and filmmakers even more, and they don't like seeing the government constrain creativity, assuming it's the kind of creativity that they like. And absolutely no one likes frivolous lawsuits or frivolous threats of frivolous lawsuits, except lawyers. Lawyers are the only humans who like frivolous legal threats. And even lawyers suffer from frivolous legal threats as much as they profit from frivolous legal threats. We need a new statute that clarifies what fair use is. And I think we need to make it an affirmative right, not just a defense under civil law as it is now. And I think we need to adjust the definition of fair use to 
unambiguously legalize the new remix culture that has turned out to be one of the best things about computers and the internet. Computers and the internet have made our lives so much worse in so many ways, but the remix culture that we've gotten is just awesome. The way everybody can so easily grab other people's content and make new content out of it. This is great, and everybody benefits from it, and I want it to be even more expressly legal than it already arguably is. It seems to me in my little non-lawyer brain, that the way we achieve all of these objectives is to simplify the statutory definition of fair use and to substantially reorganize it around the fourth factor, which I think should be the central question. Does the use interfere with the market for the original thing? Is anyone buying this Public Enemy album instead of buying the James Brown album that it samples? No. Well, then it should be considered fair use. End of discussion. I mean, a lot of sampling in music probably already is fair use, but the music industry got scared at the dawn of sampling and they adopted a conservative posture where they pay to license pretty much any sample that has not been altered beyond the point of recognition, even if the sample in question is just teeny, teeny, tiny. This posture of fear created an economic incentive for artists like Dr. Dre to stop sampling old George Clinton records. And instead, Dre started making beats himself with drum machines and synthesizers and live musicians. Dre started making beats that he would not have to pay someone else for the way that he had to pay George Clinton for, God, nearly every song on The Chronic. That's cool, I guess, but... I think Dr. Dre's greatest talent lies in creatively sampling and manipulating old Funkadelic records. That's what he's great at. Dr. Dre is not particularly talented at leading a live band and playing keyboards. His talent is in crate digging, as the DJs say. And here, I think the legal climate has disincentivized Dre from making better work. You shouldn't have to pay for samples so long as you make something really new out of them, something that no one would listen to instead of listening to the original song. And again, a judge might actually agree with me under current law, but the record companies don't want to find out. They just pay. Actually, I just looked and I found lengthy works of legal scholarship arguing that sampling in music should be usually considered fair use, so I am not alone. It would be different if instead of making songs for a living, I made snare drum samples for a living. If I make songs for a living and you just grab a, like a millisecond long snare drum sample from my song, that's probably fair use, or at least it should be fair use. But if my whole business model was like making and licensing snare drum samples, and if you sampled my snare drum sample without paying me, that would not be fair use because you are interfering with the market that sustains my work. Are there unauthorized uses of Adam Ragusea videos that I would regard as unfair use? Maybe. There are people who re-edit my videos just to make them a little shorter. They do a sloppy, subtractive edit of my video to tighten it up, or they only pull out the best part of my video and they repost that. That, in my view, is maybe unfair because it's taking the heart of the work which is an idea that already exists in case law. 
There have been cases where somebody used something without authorization and their defense was, oh, but your honor, I only used a little bit of it. And the judge was like, yeah, you only used a little bit of it, but you used the only part that anybody cares about. You used the heart of the work. And that argues against your use being fair. Like if you quote, go ahead, make my day from Dirty Harry, your use is less likely to be fair than if you quoted any of the other lines in that movie that absolutely no one remembers. Go ahead and make my day is the heart of the work. It's confusing, which is why I think legislative reform is needed to simplify things and to reorient the definition around this basic question of market replacement. The chorus of my song may indeed be, go ahead, make my day, but no one is going to listen to my song instead of watching Dirty Harry. And I'm arguing the question of fair use should be almost as simple as that. A question that simple would be much easier for non-state entities like YouTube to deal with. A simpler standard would empower independent content creators to be more confident in asserting their fair use rights. I will say there is another smaller factor that I really want a fair use reform law to deal with explicitly, and that is the matter of credit, giving credit where it's due, not money, not ownership, but acknowledgement. That's what I mean by credit. This song samples the funky drummer break improvised by Clyde Stubblefield and is legally credited to James Brown as songwriter, even though James Brown did not actually write this particular breakbeat. It was just an improvisation by the drummer on the session, Clyde Stubblefield, but the James Brown estate gets paid for samples of funky drummer anyway, because the world is insane and unjust, but we're not paying any money to anyone because this kind of sampling is probably fair use. But we are giving Clyde Stubblefield a credit in the liner notes anyway because he's one of the greatest drummers of all time and he improvised one of the greatest bars of drum solo ever captured on tape. And even though we're using it to make a totally new song that will in no way hamper the market for Funky Drummer, we're still going to give Clyde Stubblefield credit because it would be unjust to pass off his work as our own. I realize that liner notes can't be that long anymore now that we, they all have to like fit into file descriptions with character limits, but you can still give acknowledgement when you use a sample, and I think you should. In fact, I think the law should require it in some form. The existing fair use statute says nothing about attribution. Attribution definitely helps your case in court if it ever comes to that. If you try to pass off someone else's work as your own, a judge is going to look more dimly upon your fair use argument, but the letter of the law does not require or even encourage proper attribution. Indeed, explicit attribution might not always be necessary. The standard ought to be, might a reasonable person believe that you created something that you are actually lifting from somewhere else? Like, in one of my first cooking videos the chicken parmesan recipe, I used a tiny little clip from The Godfather, just for giggles. I did not credit The Godfather because I thought that went without saying. And it probably does go without saying that that was a clip from The Godfather. If you're watching like, a homemade food video shot on a DSLR in 2019, and all of a sudden you see a piece of footage from a 1972 movie shot on 35 millimeter film, you're gonna get this, you're gonna get the idea that this is a clip from something else, even if you've never seen The Godfather before. 
because you probably can tell that it's the Godfather, even if you've never seen the Godfather, because the Godfather is so famous and iconic. You don't always have to explicitly give credit. I'm not arguing that, but you do want to avoid a situation where a reasonable person could think that you had made something that you did not make. And I think that I would be fine if a new, streamlined, clarified, fair use law went something like this. An unauthorized use of copyrighted material shall be considered fair if it does not interfere with the market for the original copyrighted work and if due credit is given explicitly or implicitly. I mean, I don't really love it when I see accounts reposting my content as though they are Adam Ragusea. It might say Adam Ragusea fan account in little text in the description and they may be chopping and screwing the vids and making new culture out of them, but a lot of people leaving comments on those vids seem to be leaving them at Adam Ragusea, at me, because they believe that this is me posting this stuff. That's not great. I should probably be better at giving credit to the creators of uh, Creative Commons content that I use in my videos, because I frequently use graphics of like chemical structures or maps or charts or photos that I grab from the Wikimedia Commons or whatever, and I use them in my videos. That's fine, but I should really probably do more to give the creators credit. Usually the creators have expressly forfeited credit. They choose the Creative Commons license that does not require attribution. They made a thing for the purpose of educating fellow humans, and they expressly forfeited any claim of ownership over this thing that they created in hopes that it would be used to enlighten the world. I use these Creative Commons objects in informational, instructional videos, so I think my use is totally in harmony with what the creators intended, but I also make a lot of money doing this, and I get a lot of attention, and it would be fairer if I gave more of these creators credit for what they made, either on screen or in the video descriptions, and I'm going to try to get better about that going forward. Of course, a lot of the stock footage and stock art that I use, I pay for, I license it. I pay for the right to not have to give a credit. And in that case, I am not going to give credit. Are reaction channels fair use? I'm not talking about people who make these like highly produced, highly edited videos where they comment on another person's video and they play lots of clips along the way. That's obviously fair use. When Ethan Schlebowski broke into YouTube in part with a video commenting on one of my videos that was 100% fair use. Even if some of the arguments that he made in that video were unfair in my view, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about these, these channels where dudes just watch other people's YouTube videos and they occasionally laugh or say something snarky over top. I don't love that. Because I feel like that probably really does rob me of some traffic. If you're going to repost my video and add only a few occasional laughs and adolescent jokes about how he said smash, smashing is a rather basic physical action that we must do and discuss across many fields of endeavor, including cooking. The fact that smash has become slang for 
to have intercourse with your lady friend or whatever kind of human you're into. The fact that smash has become slang for that is really not my fault or my problem. In the minds of boys on the internet, literally every word is somehow slang for intercourse. Anyway, I think people might watch reaction videos like that instead of watching my video. And that is a direct threat to the market that sustains my creative work. And so I think it's probably illegal and it probably should be illegal. If you want to do a whole commentary on my whole video, do more than just play it and snicker over it. Since my recipe content is so heavily weighted toward the visual, like you could get the whole recipe without listening to a single word in my voiceover, I also think reaction videos that show all of my visuals are potentially infringing, even if the reactor's audio track consists of very detailed, very thoughtful commentary. Plus, it's just kind of dick when a reaction vid guy talks over one of my videos and therefore doesn't listen to what I was saying and therefore doesn't understand why I'm doing what I'm doing and how sometimes I demonstrate what not to do, etc. But that is neither here nor there. The complaint is not relevant to copyright law. That complaint is just relevant to me. I think that I would actually do some really good reaction videos myself. So I've been thinking about starting a Ragusea Reacts channel as a sort of semi-retirement gig down the line, but I'm not sure how to handle things like that from a copyright perspective. I hope that the laws and YouTube's policies are a little more functional by the time I reach that point in my career. By the time this episode of the Adam Ragusea podcast is over, I hope that at least few of you will still be with me where we're at now, like an hour and a half, I think, at least. There's no way most of you are still here. But the fact that some of you are still here speaks to how messed up copyright is and how badly reform is needed. Normal people care about this crap, congressmen. And Ragusiapod listeners vote. Make good choices. Talk to you next time. Whoop, Home taping is killing music!